This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. When you write a sermon, you get to read a lot of long books called commentaries. Uh, they're basically books about either individual or sections of books in the Bible, and they go into incredible detail about the use of all the different Greek and Hebrew terms, uh, the themes and the literary structures, and that helps you better understand the passage. They're technical tomes, and so they're really fun reads. So I was really excited when I was doing my research for this sermon, and I came across a section of a commentary entitled Dating Jonah. Was this going to be an exploration of his love life? Is there some ancient diary of a past girlfriend? Or have archaeologists found Jonah's Bumble profile? Or would he have been on Christian Mingle? Or I guess more accurately, J-Date? But no, as you may have already guessed, it was a discussion of the date at which Jonah was written, which, FYI, was probably around the 7th or 6th centuries BC. But it did get me thinking about whether I would date Jonah, and that seemed like a fun way to recap the story so far. So if you haven't been with us throughout January, we're looking at the book of Jonah. And his story starts by introducing us to him as a prophet. Prophets were people that God spoke directly to, and that seems like a plus in a boyfriend. He has a pretty good relationship with God. God's word to Jonah was to go to a city called Nineveh and to preach against it. That is, to tell the people there why they were doing what they're doing is wrong. So it sounds like Jonah's a traveller. That's another positive. But Jonah doesn't do what God wants, and he foolishly tries to run away from God and attempts to go to Tarshish by boat instead. God causes a powerful storm, and Jonah realises that he is the cause of this, and everyone on the ship will die, and because of it, he elects to be thrown overboard. I feel like there's a plus and a minus here. Being around someone who causes micro-weather situations by thinking he can outsmart God would be tricky, um, and the lack of humility it implies is troubling. But we also see Jonah act with integrity as he chooses to be thrown overboard rather than allowing the ship with the sailors to also die. Jonah falls into the ocean and God rescues him by sending a large fish to swallow him. He remains in the fish three days and nights, which I guess would be a fun party story if you were going to group events with Jonah. Um, and from chapter 2, we know that Jonah has a way with words because when he is in the fish, he prays this really beautiful prayer to God, celebrating for caring for him in distress and praising God as the God of salvation. The fish spits Jonah out and he, having learned his lesson, which seems to be a good quality, uh, goes to the city that God originally intended him to go to, Nineveh. He is clearly an effective communicator because as he travels through Nineveh, telling them that God will bring judgment on their wicked acts, the people repent and God shows grace, not bringing the destruction that he had threatened. Which brings us to the start of today's reading and the end of my musings on Jonah as a potential romantic partner. However, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that after the service. Chapter 4 is a really fascinating chapter of the Bible. And in it, we see Jonah as almost a confused figure of both really great relationship with God and deep understanding of his character, but at the same time, a lack of compassion and an unwillingness to accept and be transformed by God's goodness. 
But I don't think we should judge Jonah too harshly, as we know the character of God so much better than he ever could, as God's character has been revealed to us in Christ. So what happens in chapter 4? Well, Nineveh has repented and God has relented, but this is displeasing to Jonah and he is angry. He has seen the wickedness of the Ninevites and he doesn't think they should get away with what they have done. He wants to see punishment for their crimes. What is great is that we see Jonah take this idea directly to God. And this is a theme that we see over and over again in the prophets. That is, prophets were people who were God's direct voices into the community and the chosen messengers of his word. And yet they speak their truth to him. Jonah does not hold back from telling God what he thinks. And I think one of the resonances of this book is the model it offers for talking directly to God. God desires relationship with us and to hear and know our thoughts. We don't have to put a display on for him or pretend that we understand or are always good. God knows that we are not. He wants us to enter into honest conversation with him. And one of the reasons that this is important is that Jonah's question is still a very relevant one today. As a school chaplain, I'm often asked by my students, do you mean that if like Hitler said he was sorry just before he died, he would go to heaven? Which of course I respond with, please choose a less Eurocentric dictator. You're only allowed to use Hitler as your example once a year. But once we have clarified that there's more to the world than Europe and greater history than World War II, the question remains, how do we understand God as good when his grace seems so unjust? And this is Jonah's struggle because he knows God. He uses the word know as there, as in the relationship know, the way you know your family, not the way you know the Prime Minister. Although this being St Mark's, I'm sure there's someone here who does actually know the Prime Minister. Uh, but Jonah tells us five characteristics of God that he knows. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. And God is ready to relent from punishing. The word for merciful here is used 13 times in the Old Testament, and each time it's only in relationship with God. Abounding in steadfast love is the word hesed in Hebrew, which can be translated unrelenting love, a love that cannot be stopped. If you've ever read the Jesus Storybook Bible to a child in your life, you, will know that the, you may know the way author Sally Lloyd-Jones describes this love, that God loves with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God loves with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And Jonah's reaction to seeing this love played out is to declare he wants to die, which seems like an extreme reaction, right? But I think we have to realise that for Jonah, whilst he knew God's character, it didn't square with his understanding of reality. He knows that God is compassionate, but he also knows that God demands justice. In this case, Jonah believes that justice is the right course of action, and thus he can't even compute that God would act in any other way. This complete breakdown of his moral universe leaves him unwilling to go on. 
In verse 5, Jonah leaves the city, which means the previous discourse between him and God happened while he was still in Nineveh. The Ninevites would have heard Jonah complain to God, and for them, this is wondrous news. This is how they know God's not going to judge them, that God has relented, that God loves them with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always and forever love. But the story follows Jonah up and out of the city, and there he builds himself a booth in the shade. This booth is reminiscent of the booths from a particular Jewish festival, sometimes called Sukkah, um, or less creatively, the Festival of Booths. In the Jewish calendar, uh, in Jonah's day and still today, uh, the Festival of Booths reminds the people of God's providence when they wandered in the desert, when the Israelites were particularly unlovely and God kept loving them and blessing them anyway. In Zechariah, the Festival of Booths is a celebration that all nations will come to worship God. And so the booth in this story uh, seems to highlight the disconnect between Jonah's thinking and what God is actually like. God wants to teach Jonah, and so he sends a bush to shelter him. It seems that Jonah's booth wasn't very good, and the bush is a welcome addition, keeping Jonah out of the fierce sun. In the Sydney weather we've had this week, it isn't hard to imagine the welcome relief that this shade would be to Jonah. The word used for discomfort in verse 6 to describe Jonah in the hot sun is actually used three times in the book of Jonah, but translated as calamity in English the first two times in our Bible. The first of these is in 1 chapter 7, when, uh, chapter 1 verse 7, when the storm is fierce and the sailors and Jonah think they're going to drown. They say, who knows why this calamity, discomfort, has come upon us? The second is in chapter 3, verse 10, which was the first of our uh, verse in our reading today. When God changes his mind about the calamity slash discomfort, he will bring upon the Ninevites and relents from bringing it. I think the repeated use of this word is supposed to exaggerate to us the ridiculousness of Jonah's position. That rescue from calamity should rightly bring people to rejoicing. As Jonah himself is delighted when the storm ceases and he is rescued by the fish. He loves it when God rescues him from the calamity of the hot sun. But when God saves 120,000 people, Jonah's only reaction is anger. So God sends a worm to eat up the bush and Jonah again is angry enough to die because life to Jonah seems unjust and injustice is what he will not stand. God at this point could leave Jonah, as he could at any point in the story, but he doesn't, and his rebuke is gentle but decisive. He says that Jonah cares about the bush, and he put literally no effort into making it or its upkeep. He didn't fertilise it or anything. Jonah only cared about the bush because of its usefulness to him. But God cares about everything because he made it. He made the bush. He made the people of Nineveh. He even made the cows in Nineveh. And for God, usefulness doesn't determine a person or a thing's worth. Everything has inherent and unchanging worth because they are his creation. Furthermore, for God, basic compassion is far more important than strict justice. People getting their just desserts is not as important as loving people, forgiving them, and recognising their inherent worth and dignity. And it feels like a startling dichotomy is drawn here between compassion and justice. 
from Jonah, who wants to see justice done, to God, who seems to let the Ninevites get away without any consequences for their actions. Jonah, as an Israelite, would have regarded the Ninevites as mortal enemies and the worst of people. So it's possible he's a little biased here in his desire for God to act with vengeance. But we also know that there was a serious culture of violence in Nineveh, and there was a reason uh, that they needed to repent. In Nahum we, Nahum, we read of Nineveh as a city of blood and endless cruelty. There is a reason that Jonah wants to see justice and is unwilling to accept God acting with compassion. And I think there might be at least some merit to Jonah's argument. God isn't only a God of love and compassion. He is also a God of justice. In fact, as we read the Bible, we see that God's justice is an expression of his love. God upholds good and evil because he is a God who loves us and grieves to see his people and his creation hurt. So how are we to understand God's response to Jonah here? Firstly, I think it's important to remember that God doesn't say justice won't happen. Jonah has no real way of knowing this, but as Christians, we know that God takes both justice and love so seriously, he will send his son to die. For justice because of the sins of the Ninevites, like our sins, demand it. But also in love, because rather than pour out his anger on us or the Ninevites, he himself takes our guilt, shame, and punishment in the cross. Secondly, I think that Jonah's decision that he knows the best way forward and how God should act is probably a good clue that he isn't right. Because God is perfect, and unlimited in his capacity for wisdom and knowledge. This is a God who holds forgiveness, justice, compassion, and moral uprightness perfectly. But as humans, we're limited, and it can be hard for us to understand how he does this, which is the heart of Jonah's problem. He is unwilling, and therefore unable, to accept in humility that God's way is better, and that God's way is right. Although he knows the character of God as one of compassion, the way he describes God as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love is a central theme of the Old Testament, the books of the Bible that Jonah would have known. This is how God describes himself to Moses. This is how David describes God in Psalms 103, 86 and 145. This is Nehemiah 9:17 and Joel 2:13. This is one of the cornerstones of Jonah's faith. God is love. And yet, despite knowing this, all this about God, Jonah lacks the humility to accept it. Which brings us to the question, how will we? Finally, I think it's helpful to remember that like all sin, the sin of the Ninevites results from God's gift to us of free will. And it is unavoidable that God's love expressed in this way will result in darkness in this world as it is the same in the Garden of Eden, where God's love gave Adam and Eve free will and choice and resulted in the brokenness that we live in to this day. It is because God loves people that he does not force them to robotically follow in his ways, but offers them a choice to love him and repent where they have failed. We know from reading the later prophets that within a generation, the Ninevites will have returned to their wickedness. But that shows more to us that God's love will extend even to the unpredictability and capriciousness of the human race. 
if it allows some people to come to a saving relationship with him. In his second epistle, Peter deals with a similar question where he addresses the concern that some Christians had that Jesus had not yet returned. His readers may have asked, why doesn't Jesus come back now and fix this dark and painful world, giving right justice to those who are oppressive, violent and abusive? And in 2 Peter 3.9, where Peter encourages his readers to think that, uh, not to think that God has forgotten to return, not even to consider that he takes evil lightly or that he will not come to establish justice, but rather that, and here I quote, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise to return as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's grace extends in the most unlikely of ways, and one of them is allowing the unpredictability of free will to humans. Or as the Christian pop band Reliant K puts it, the beauty of grace is that it makes life unfair. God's love extended to the Ninevites in that he will allow them to have autonomy, and far more so, his grace extended in that he will forgive their wrongdoing and risk being hurt by them again. And he will forgive them because they are more because they are important to him. They are his dearly beloved creation, who he loves with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. The final verse of Jonah is a question. God asks it to Jonah, but he's also asking it to us. He says, Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Now this verse makes me pretty nervous because I'm actually one of those people who don't know their left hand from their right, but I genuinely hope this statement is metaphorical in that the Ninevites were completely lost and in need of spiritual direction. God cares about the lost, and we know this because all of us who have known his grace once were lost and have experienced the great joy of being found by him. Jesus reminds us that he came to seek and save the lost. And if we are people who know that God's grace can extend and permeate even to the most unlikely of people, then this is a challenging question to us. Because we all know people who are lost and far from God, and that God's great love and compassion extends to them, as well as the reality of his judgment if they are not pardoned by the cross. Who are we to hold words of eternal life to ourselves if we have known their truth and goodness? I think as a Christian, it is hard to read this statement and not be challenged to think who we might be more actively, boldly and lovingly sharing the great news of Jesus with. To tell of his life, death and resurrection and his work in our own lives. That we know the God of salvation who wants to extend this invitation of compassion to all. This final statement is a question, but more, uh, because more than just tell it to Jonah, Jonah wants, uh, God wants Jonah to extend his, examine his own thoughts and attitudes. We have seen that for Jonah, his problem is the disconnect between his knowledge of God and his own attitude and actions. In our second reading today, the parable of the vineyard workers, we saw very similar themes. There is a way that would seem right and just to humans, 
but God's grace and love is so much bigger. The story's pretty simple. There's a man who wants some people to work in his vineyard, and he hires some people at the beginning of the day. They start work, but then he needs some more, and so he goes out and hires some more people at nine, and then again at noon and three and five. At the end of the day, regardless of when they started work, everyone gets paid the same amount of money. Those who worked the longest grumble and complain, but the owner of the vineyard, who in this parable stands for God, challenges them on this. God acts with limitless generosity and compassion and challenges us not to be uncomfortable or angry at this, but rather to realign how we live in line with him. And here we see that the challenge in we we see that challenge in two very pointed questions. From the end of Jonah, should I not show compassion? And then in Matthew, are you envious because I am generous? There is a difference between knowing God and having a life that is transformed by that knowledge. These questions force us to consider if we are uncomfortable or resentful at the grace of God and then to examine our hearts and change. Because if we have known God and experienced his love for ourselves, we want that love to be transforming every part of who we are. Because who would want to be resentful, angry or bitter when we could be generous, loving and compassionate, trusting in the God of the universe who brings perfect love and justice? If you haven't known this God, can I ask you to consider if this unbreaking, never giving up, always and forever love is something you want to be a part of? Because that's something that God wants to offer you. If you feel like you don't know this God well enough to see what your, whether your attitudes are in line with his, which I think is most of us, my challenge to you is to get to know him better. Read your Bible. Pray in honest ways to him. Talk to others about who he is. And a side note, a really great way to do that is to join one of our community groups here at St Mark's. But don't let any knowledge you learn about God stay theoretical, but humbly, through prayer, allow it to transform who you are. Because this God of perfect justice and limitless compassion is calling you to himself. And what could be more wonderful than having a life transformed by that? Thanks for listening please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.